Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. show so far maybe we should do another review mm-hmm. uh, if uh, we go over some of the reviews we've done in the past <laughs> I'll I'll just try to summarize here what we we're talking about and and we could start by painting that picture that uh, you were painting uh, you use that uh, uh, idea for for Matthew that Matthew is creating a, a, a case here and uh, he's a uh, uh, like kind of like a, a you know a lawyer presenting uh, uh, his uh, his client, and uh, so he's showing us number one through the begots that uh, Jesus comes from the line of David, and uh, of course there's the reference to uh, Moab and, and Ruth, Ruth being a Gentile and uh, Moab being a Jew, showing us kind of a precursor to the, you know, the one church 
that's going to be universal, a Catholicos, with both Jews and Gentiles. So Matthew uh, starts out the begots, and then he shows us that uh, uh, Jesus is uh, uh, first uh, evangelizing in the Galilee, which is half Jews and half Gentiles. And he's showing us a, a radical transformation. Now, what I mean by this is before Christ came into the world, you had things like the Code of Hammurabi, where you had you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And you had the Jewish law uh, for the Jews who were previously subjected to 400 years in Egypt. So they developed a lot of wrong thinking, a lot of you know, paganism uh, in, the, in their thinking process. And so, uh, as Paul says, the law was a pedagogue for Christ, and a pedagogy is a strict schoolmaster for a child. So you had the letter of the law, and you had the code of Hammurabi. And when Christ came onto the scene, uh, the world was changed through the Holy Spirit entering the world in just uh, an, an amazing way. If, if you look at the historical thought of people before Christ and how they processed things, more of a legalistic terms. And then uh, when uh, the apostles uh, began to teach you know, the teachings of Christ, and they taught about the laws being written on our hearts as prophecy fulfilled. This is actually grace given freely. So uh, in Ephesians 2, Paul says we're saved by grace through faith. Well, Paul also says that the laws have been written on our hearts. So this uh, law written on our hearts is grace given freely. Uh, all the sacraments, sacraments are not works. They are grace given freely. And Paul says through faith. Well, we understood when Paul talks about faith, he's talking about faith as a Jewish convert. And you need to think like a first century Jew in order to really understand the New Testament, because the apostles were Jews who never understood belief or faith, fide, outside of a covenant relationship with God. So when Christ said, this is my blood of the new covenant, do this. You know, this opened their eyes because they're not looking at, uh, uh, you know, the old way of doing things anymore because they're being taught the Beatitudes. They're being taught things that go way beyond just the letter of the law. And in the New Covenant, they're being taught the sacrifice of the Mass, which is the true Passover for the world. So as we go on, we hear in Matthew about the Beatitudes. And we have a theme running through here, and it's building on a, a few main aspects. Jesus as a son of man, Jesus as a son of God. And as, as we discussed, when Matthew uh, quotes prophecy, the Jews had a, a, a traditional process where you would quote like there were three or four words of, of the psalm. And... And then you would follow, you know, uh, understanding of the whole psalm, just like Jesus on the cross. So this uh, says that uh, it, when uh, he was quoting Psalms 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, he's basically doing what the Jews were doing before him and saying, follow the path, follow the psalm. 
So in the middle of the psalm, we get, I, I will declare my name in a great church, and I will declare my, there, there will be a people not yet born. And so from the cross, which Augustine basically uh, calls the marriage bed of Christ in his, in his church, he is proclaiming this church coming into being. And if we go back a little bit into Matthew, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. Well, the Jews didn't understand the kingdom of heaven as the heaven above. Uh, what they understood was they understood the gospel message of the reestablished kingdom of David. And so uh, Matthew, as he develops this, you know, this case, is showing us that this kingdom is being reestablished. But when we also reference Paul, we showed that this kingdom is not just a physical kingdom, but a sacramental kingdom. So when Jesus says, unless you're born again of water and spirit, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus also says there are weeds and are wheat in the kingdom. So this cannot be the kingdom above. So what our Protestant, uh, you know, uh, friends get wrong is the context because they're not seeing it as a first century Jewish convert. So unless you're born again of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom, the the gospel message of the reestablished sacramental kingdom. Uh, and this is his body uh, mystically present. This is truly we do not look at the body of Christ as, you know, as a metaphor Paul says those who partake of the one bread are part of the one body. He's, he talks about uh, the church being the body and Christ being the head. Well, this in turn gives us this imagery that we should see throughout most of the scriptures and not in a metaphorical term, but a heavenly reality of actually being part of this body. So uh, just this this background is is where we're going now when we get into uh uh where we left off in Matthew 10:26 through 31 which I'll go ahead and read Therefore fear them not for nothing is covered that shall not be revealed nor hid that shall not be known that which I tell you in the dark speak ye in the light and that which you hear in the in the ear preach ye upon the housetops and fear ye not them that kill the body and are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him that can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not the two sparrows sold for a farthing, and not one of them shall fall on the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, better are you than many sparrows. So one may think that this contradicts what I, what I said about the church protecting this, the deep spiritual mysteries uh, uh, last week. But Basil gives support for uh, what I said when he wrote, Have any saints left for us in writings the words to be used in the invocation over the Eucharistic bread and the cup of blessing? As everyone knows, we are not content in the liturgy simply to recite the words recorded by St. Paul or the Gospels, but we add other words, both before and after, words of great importance for this mystery. We have received these words from the unwritten teaching. We bless baptismal water and the oil of chrismation, as well as the candidate approaching the font. By what written authority do we do this, if not the secret and mystical tradition? Even beyond blessing the oil, 
what written command do we have to anoint with it? What about baptizing a man with three immersions or other baptismal rites, such as the renunciation of Satan and, and his angels? Are not all these found in unpublished and unwritten teachings, which our fathers guarded in silence, safe from meddling and petty curiosity? They had learned their lesson well. Reverence for the mysteries is best encouraged by silence. The uninitiated were not even allowed to be present at the mysteries. How could you expect these teachings to be paraded about in public documents? Why did the great Moses not open every part of the meeting tent to everyone? The unclean he placed outside the sacred precincts. Uh, unclean now is, is, is uh, basically unbaptized if we look at type and fulfillment. I'll go on. While the first court was assigned for the ritual pure, he judged only the Levites worthy to serve God. While sacrifices, burnt offerings, and other priestly functions were reserved to the priests, only one chosen from all the priests was admitted into the innermost sanctuary, but only on one day of each year. Even on this day, one day, he entered for only a short time, so that he would be amazed by the novelty and strangeness of gazing on the Holy of Holies. Moses was wise enough to realize that triteness and familiarity breed contempt. But the unusual and the unfamiliar natural commands eager interest. In the same way, when the apostles and fathers established ordinance for the church, they protected the dignity and the mysteries with silence and secrecy from the beginning. Since what is noised abroad to anyone at random is no mystery at all, we have unwritten traditions so that the knowledge of dogma might not become neglected and scorned through familiarity. Dogma is one thing, curiogma is another. The first is observed in silence while the other is proclaimed to the world. We see this a little bit, you know, uh, we need to see this a little bit when we look at all the Gospels and all the epistles. So there's going to be underlying themes and stuff that are going on, but they are going to be there almost almost cryptically because Paul says, uh, he talks about uh, spiritual things needing to be spiritual examined. And he says, if our gospel be veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. It was veiled to those outside the church. Yeah, you know, Luke, there's so much there's so much depth to what you're saying, and I, I think the first thing that we need to examine here, when looking at all this stuff, is the difference between a, a contradiction and a paradox, because we have to really confront that when we confront Matthew's gospel because so much of what Jesus brought and so much of, of the exposition of Jesus by Matthew is paradox. And it and and I can understand why the first century Jews saw a lot of things that Jesus says as contradictions. For instance, the Old Testament tells us, Thou shalt not partake of blood. And then here's Jesus saying, this is the cup of my blood, and if you do not eat, eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. This seems to set Jesus in direct contradiction with the Old Testament. The Sabbath, as we'll talk about earlier, uh, later, the Sabbath, the people were punished for the least violations of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. And yet Jesus and his apostles almost almost seemed like they disregard the Sabbath to, to, to some extent. And then you look at the fact that 
they viewed the Messiah, all these uh, prophecies of the Messiah, just as you said, they viewed as a, a man who would come and conquer, who would conquer the Romans for their for their evil deeds, their evil tortures. And Luke, there was nothing more barbaric and and ugly that the Romans did than a Roman crucifixion. Would you agree? I mean, that was. That was the worst of the worst. It was a it was a punishment considered so barbaric and so grotesque that it was reserved only for the vilest of criminals, and it was meant to send a message. It not only was a a horrible, agonizing death, but it was a humiliating death. Your body was your dying body was on display for all to see, and it was it was designed. It was a twofold uh, sentence. It was designed to torture the victim, and it was designed to send a message, a clear message. Now, take that in context. Looking that in context, imagine the shock of the Jewish people when they're hearing Jesus admonish people to take up their cross. That must have sounded like. Can you imagine, Luke, how crazy that sounded? And then one that, more thing I'm, that uh, imagine at first they're looking him at looking at him on Palm Sunday as their king. Then he goes to the cross, which is a complete contradiction. But Simon, right. you know, prophesied this contradiction when he said, "He shall be a sign of contradiction." And a sword will pierce your own heart, so that thoughts may be revealed. Talking to Mary. Yep. yep. And then one last thing that you covered also seems to be paradox. Now, Jesus confronting Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate directly asked him. He said, "Are you a king?" He says, "My kingdom is not of this world." And yet, in Matthew's Gospel, we read this quote. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, a person who sins and is teaching others to sin, he's not doing that in the heavenly kingdom. <laughs> this is something... so. So Jesus is referring to the kingdom of heaven as something that occurs on earth. Well, what is it? Is it is it in heaven? Is it on earth? And and then, and there's some scriptures that seem to indicate it's not of earth, it's in heaven. And some scriptures seem to indicate, well, it's not in heaven, it's on earth. Well, this is paradox. Because the answer lies in the fact that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth are combined. They're conjoined in the church. And the earthly worship in the mass is actually a participation in the heavenly worship. This is what we're shown in the book of Revelation when John is taken up. This is what Paul talks about when he's taken up. They're taken up to heaven and they they, they witness the heavenly worship and it's the same worship that we have on earth but the worship on earth 
does not need to be understood as an imitation of the worship in heaven. It's an actual participation in it. Luke, it just, it just boggles you know, the mind, doesn't it? it? No, its own. I'm sorry, what was that again? You are not of the world. If you're of the world, the world would know its own. Amen. Are you done? Yeah. So we're off to Matthew 10:32. We read, "Everyone therefore that shall confess before me, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But he that shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven." This this call to confess before men has to be seen in light of the gospel. And of course, Protestants try to use this verse in, in part to uh, to their faith alone doctrine, which is simply establishing in an altar call or confessing that you are a believer before men. But if you place this verse in the context of the first century church, this, this means much more. Uh, if you're confessing your belief, then you're confessing obedience to that belief. Of course, we all announce that Jesus is God who was incarnate and went to the cross so that we could be saved through his blood, through belief. But it is true belief that leads to understanding the true gospel we are, we are called to confess. So this gospel includes everything we have addressed so far, the reestablished kingdom, the prophecy fulfilled, the laws written on our hearts, the laws of faith and obedience to faith and the sacramental life the true Passover and the Holy Mass for the general redemption of the world, baptism, which is being saved by the blood of the Lamb, etc. Do you deny Christ before man when you fight against his words, this is my body? Uh, Yeah, you do. You You do deny him. So the apostles were Jews who never understood belief outside of a covenant relationship with God. Jesus establishing the covenant in his glorified body and blood through which we become flesh of his flesh and blood of his blood, being that the church is the bride of Christ, said, this is my blood and new covenant, do this. Belief is obedience. Disobedience is not belief. This is my body. So I first saw this while I was reading uh, Bernard Marthaler's book uh, called The Creed. Uh, I want to read this to our audience so they get a little bit of understanding of you know, this, this true nature of believe. Uh, from the beginning of Christianity, the words to believe meant to hold dear, to commit to, to be beloved. The German equivalent is the word belieben, which means give allegiance to. To have faith in God is to give allegiance to God and live in every word. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Faith also includes a core meaning from the Indo-European root, bidet. From bidet, we get the source of two words, bide and abide, which carries the association of something that is solid, something that is binding together of two things. The Latin fide, the Greek pistis, and the English faith at its older root form all have the same origin and form. Faith is to firmly bind yourself to something. This also refers to trustworthiness in, in, in a covenant relationship. 
So we bind belief with a covenant life in obedience to the faith. A covenant relationship is an allegiance, but much more. This is my body. This is my blood. Man and woman become one flesh. Jesus says, I espouse you to me in justice. I espouse you to me forever. I am yours and you are mine. And etymologically, belief, believe, is related to a broad range of familiar words, uh, some archaic like dear or willing, some still in use like beloved and love. And the history of believe is in its, its, in its various forms, ranging from Old English beloaf to the early modern English synonym beloved, through the 17th century misspelling that gave us believe, uh, I-E-V-E, instead of believe, B-E-L-E-E-V-E, is a chronicle of his gradual change in meaning in the 14th century, about the time of John Wycliffe, 1330 to 1384, the important, important changes began to take place that marked the transition from the Middle English to Modern English. So a new word, faith, was, was coming into use as the English form of the Latin fides. So earlier evidence of the transition can be seen in, in two versions of the English Bible attributed to Wycliffe, both bases on the Latin Vulgate. In the first, believe, or B-I-L-E-F-E, translates fide, where in the second, faith appears in a number of places. By the 17th century, the transition was virtually complete. The 1611 King James authorized, so-called authorized version used the word faith 246 times while using believe uh, only once. And uh, this is uh, recorded in the Oxford English Dictionary, which describes this evolution of the change. It says the word faith through being through Old French F-E-I, and faith, the etymological representative of the Latin fides, it began to, in the 14th century, to be used to translate the latter, and, is, and of course, of time, almost superseded belief, especially in theological language, leaving belief in greater measure to merely intellectual process or state. So uh, even the idea of commitment uh, it should be noted is also at the root memory of the, of the original Latin. Etymologically, credo, it seems, is a compound of two other Latin words, core and cordis, or heart, as in the English derivatives cordial or concord or accord. The primary meaning a credo in classic Latin was to entrust or to commit to. Commit to or, as the apostles lived, to covenant in. This is my blood in the new covenant. Do this. So the Catholic creed is an expression of faith that is lived in the heart, cordis. The covenant life in the sacraments and obedience to the faith is what God established for our fallen nature. When scripture is looked at through a true image of faith, a true image of covenant, including proper exegesis combined with the image of the historical church, you'll find that there's not one word in Scripture that goes against the Catholic faith. Let me repeat this for our Protestant brothers. This is a fact. You'll find that there is not one word in Scripture that goes against the Catholic faith. So belief in obedience to God is believing when he said, this is my body.
Yeah, there's not one word that goes against the Catholic faith, but there's a lot of words that go against their image of the Catholic faith, their false, false image of the Catholic faith. And you just painted a, a very good picture, Luke, because that false image is created in large part because of their redefining of words. And they have redefined faith to simply be intellectual assent. They've taken faith or belief and changed it into intellectual assent. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, many times faith is contradictory to intellectual assent. Uh, and, and Paul talks about this often. He talks about faith being uh, hoping in what is unseen. In order to have faith, sometimes you have to not believe what your eyes are seeing, not believe what your senses are perceiving. So that's something that's impossible to do by intellectual assent. And we go back to the scripture that this whole apostle is based on, Mark chapter 12, verse 30. It says, we must love the Lord our God with our whole heart, whole mind, whole soul, and whole strength. Well, that entails intellectual assent, the assent of the mind. It, in, it entails charity and love, which is assent of the heart. It entails uh, believing, putting our trust and belief in that which our eyes cannot see, which is the assent of the soul. And then it entails the final action, the ascent of the will, of the strength of the body, which is putting our beliefs into actions. So all of those things have to be present. And to, to try to separate faith or in, in, uh, to, to try to separate faith from works then is like really trying to separate water from wet. If you're taking the four ingredients that make up faith, and trying to reduce it to simple intellectual assent. Well, by intellectual assent, I can say that two plus two equals four, but that doesn't cost me anything. And true faith means there's a sacrifice, there's a price, there's a cost. And I mean, certainly we can tell that with the apostles because they paid a they paid a terrible price for their faith in 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 terms of not only dying but dying in a horrible way and and with that understanding when jesus says but he that shall deny me before men i will also deny him before my father who is in he who is in heaven our belief is every word of god so you are denying him when you do not do not accept his words this is my body you're denying him when he says that if they do not accept even the church, treat them as heathens as publicans, you're denying him when you're denying the authority of the church. And we could, we could show example after example of this. But uh, when you place faith in the true understanding of a first century Jewish convert, <coughs> it, it completely opens up the scripture to you. And it opens it up as you know a living obedience to the faith 
to the covenant God established as our process of transforming grace and as the narrow road, because Satan is on both sides of that road. Mm-hmm. And if you're not on that narrow road of the sacramental life, then at your foundation, you have already denied the words of Christ. And and to emphasize, to put an exclamation point at the end of what you're saying, Jesus said himself, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So if intellectual assent, I mean, James says the demons believe and they shudder. So if intellectual assent was enough, then how, how do you reconcile that with those passages? And speaking to those demons, when Christ said, uh, those who call me Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in thy name? Did I cast out demons in, my, in thy name? Did I not uh, commit miracles in that name? And he says, go away, I never knew you because you weren't obedient. So what is right. going on here? What is going on here is he's showing that the demons, to keep people from that narrow road, can create false prophecy. They could, you know, purposely have demon, you know, other demons, you know, move, move away from a, a soul, or they could have create false miracles in order to keep people from uh, from truth, to keep them in a heretical faith. So people have this, you know, understanding that, you know, they could battle with Satan at, you know, uh, in a battle of wits. The only thing that overcomes Satan is humility and obedience. Right. So it looks like we're on Matthew ten thirty four through thirty six. <clears throat> Do not think that I have came, I came to send peace upon earth. I came not to send peace, but the sword. For I came to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemy shall be they of his own household. <clears throat> so our modern world is a perfect example of this prophecy fulfilled. Uh, first, it was early Christians against pagans in, in their families, or early Christians against Jews in their families. Now it's Protestants against the church and the church against the world. Uh, if you don't have the faith to take God at his word, when he said, this is my body, then you cannot truly see how the main key to understanding scripture. And due to this lack of faith in God, in God, Protestants and Catholics do not even look like they are speaking the same language sometimes. Catholics speak the language of a first century Jewish convert, while Protestants speak the, the traditional language of anti-Catholicism a construct of new false exegesis concepts and definitions that were created by man of fallen nature after 1,400 years of Christianity to begin to separate man from the Catholic Church. And, you know, God gave us this you know, this truth and this covenant uh, reality to assist our fallen nature. Man began to create this false doctrine, false construct while in fallen nature. So... When it comes to God's call to to, to fear, uh, the Jerome Commentary explains it this way. Matthew has carefully shaped his source so that it not only uh, ends with fear, but also begins with it. He thus unifies the material by creating an inclusio. He has also changed his source 
so that there is a contrast between the hidden ministry of Jesus and the more public ministry of the disciples. See on verse 27. So compare Luke's theological passives, which look to a future of divine expose. Matthew retains the passive in verse 26 as the basis for bold proclamations in verse 27. So you have no fear of them. The ministry of preaching is intrinsically frightening. Only faith in a revealing and judging God can overcome that fear. Fear him who can destroy the soul and body. Yeah, this this dynamic is just, this is again one of those things that's so paradoxical. Because Jesus almost seems cruel here. He, he seems, why, Lord, why would you do this? Why would you set a man against his son, a, a mother against her daughter? Why would you do this? Why would you destroy families like this? It, it almost sounds like Jesus has come as a destroyer, not as a, as a, as a builder, as a uniter. Uh, and, and yet you, you have to understand all of this in the larger context. The larger context is that faith, again, can't be something that's just spoken be something that's proven and in order to prove that faith we have to undergo difficult situations we have to be put in difficult situations where we have difficult choices to make and some of those difficult choices are going to set us against our own family members our own friends our own people that we surround ourselves with uh, our people at work these kinds of moral conflicts of, of of who are you going to serve? Who is the master that you're going to serve? And it's something that has to be tested. And through that process of testing, we prove our faith. And Jesus didn't come to destroy families, but he came to deliver his, his ministry to people who have to prove that they truly want it. You have to prove that you truly want it. Definitely. Definitely. So we'll go on to Matthew 10.37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not up his cross and followeth me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that shall lose his life for me shall find it. All of humanity is flawed, and God is truth. So if we choose the flaws of humanity over the truth of Christ, then we are loving humanity and its flaws more than the perfections of Christ. Again, we are here for a blink of an eye compared to eternity. In that blink, we choose self and the fallen nature and ego, or we choose Christ and following truth as it's revealed to the soul. So if we go against that truth revealed, then we are again at every point that we, that we do, we are not worthy of Christ. This is also a key to the ability to overcome false preconceptions overcome cognitive dissonance through Christ. And often this change of heart includes 
a new cross to carry off of the change in uh, heart uh, includes, you know, a breaking of the heart. Yeah. And, and I love how Matthew makes it clearer than Luke does. Because in Luke, this companion verse says, he who does not hate his mother and father, brother and sister, son and daughter, is not worthy of me. And that's, uh, uh, it's something is lost in the translation. What Jesus is saying here is Jesus doesn't want us to hate our children. He doesn't want us to hate our parents. But what he does want us to do is to love them truly. And when you love someone truly, you act in a way that is best in their behavior, or best in their benefit. And sometimes in doing that, you're going to make somebody unhappy. Like, for instance, kids, I want to go, I want to go play with my friends. No, you're going to church, period. Now, the kid might be unhappy at that time. But you're acting, you're loving that child by forcing them to do what is best for them. So, you know, when I hear parents say, say, well, you know, I don't want to force religion on my kids. I don't want to force the faith on my kids. You know, I, I just, you know what, let the kids decide for themselves. You are enabling. You're not loving. You're enabling. So, in this sense, this is, this is the sense of what Jesus is speaking Loving your children more than me. And in, in, in the essence, who, who loves your children more than you? Jesus loves your children more than you. So if, if truly expressing your love towards Jesus, truly expressing your love towards your children is the same thing. Uh, it, you either have both or you have neither. That's really what we have here. Brings to mind when Paul talks about uh, the relationship in the family, saying that the uh, father is in the image of God, as the the mother is in the image of, of, of the husband and man. So the father has that responsibility. Period. In the image of being God in that household, expressing God through him to the family members as the authority over the household. You know, of, of course, uh, you know, with, with this uh, whole relationship between the, the, you know, the husband and wife is is a beautiful play. You know, it's a, the, the, the vocational roles and things. And this doesn't mean that, uh, you know, the, the, the father lords over, you know, the woman or anything like that just as a disclaimer here. It does mean. That sometimes a dad's not going to be the most popular person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. So we're on Matthew nineteen forty through forty-two. So he that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of the prophet shall receive the reward of the prophet. And he that receiveth a just man in the name of a just man shall receive the reward of a just man. And whosoever shall give to drink to one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, amen, I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Of course, this is addressed first to the apostles and then to the church throughout all time. 
is to this same church that Jesus gave instructions to when he said, uh, but if thy brother shall offend thee uh, uh, against thee, go and rebuke him between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou shalt gain thy brother. And if he shall not hear thee, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may stand. And if he will not hear them, tell the church. And if he will not hear the church, let him be to thee as publicans. Amen, I say to you, whoever shall, uh, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound also in heaven, and whatever loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. So where two or more gather, Jesus is there. But those two are in, in proper context are subjected to the church. So he who hears you hears me, and whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven shows the extension of the authority of God onto his church, which he said he would not leave orphans, but would be guided by the Holy Spirit. So one is to be treated as a heathen or a publican and outcast from the church because he's going against the church when it comes to the deposit of faith. They're going against the Holy Spirit. So the Jerome commentary writes about this. Uh, a man's agent is like himself. It deepens the religious basis of the apostolate by deriving it ultimately from God himself in a cascading succession mediated by Jesus, who is himself the apostle of the Father. The dignity of the Christian minister standing in this line is great indeed, but all depends on their seed freely. Sorry, I'm... Uh just got some water here. I'm choking. I had a dry throat for some reason. <laughs> you know, Luke, this here's this contradiction again though. This is this is why I just put myself in the position of the of the people listening to this. So so Jesus says, Hey, I, I've come to put you against your, your own family, against your own kids, against your own parents. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now he's turning around and saying Anyone who gives one of these disciples, even even a cup of cold water, surely will not lose his reward. So Jesus seems like harsh and 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 demanding and, and unreasonably demanding in one sense. And it turns right around and says, even the smallest thing like giving a cup of water to one of these disciples, you will not lose your reward. So all of this need the stress. The tension pulled back and forth between these two images always needs to come back to the same point. It's who is your master. And that is the lesson that's being taught here is that the hard way is to go against Jesus. The easy way, the 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 simple way, the way of reward, the way of, of the uh, uh, the easiest way to go, you know, Jesus said, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is what's being illustrated in here is that by rebelling against Jesus and trying to do things our own way, we make things infinitely harder on ourselves. That's the message that Matthew's trying to convey here. And I could see how it gets lost on people, can't you? 
Yeah. Also, uh, when you referenced the yoke, that yoke was understood as the Mosaic law of rule, fear, and temporal punishment, even stoning. So Christ's yoke is, is charity. Christ's yoke is living the sacramental life. Christ's yoke is summed up in what Paul says, charity works no evil to a neighbor, therefore charity is the fulfillment of the law. Right. So it looks like we're at Matthew 11 now. Okay. Start with Matthew 11, 1. Came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he passed from thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, sending two of his disciples, he said to him, Art thou he that art to come, or, or look we for another? And Jesus, keen answer, said to them, Go and relate to John what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead rise again, the poor have gospel preached to them, and blesses he that shall not be scandalized in me. <clears throat> this brings to mind uh, Malachi 3. Uh, we understand an angel in this context, actually it means messenger. And then Malachi 3, it says, Behold, I send my angel, and he shall prepare the way before my face. And presently the Lord, whom you seek, and the angel of the testament, who you desire, shall come to his temple. Behold, he cometh, saith the Lord of hosts. So these works Jesus described were the works of the prophecy, the Messiah, which uh, brings to mind the Messiah will also be a suffering servant, uh, Isaiah 42. Uh, shows us. I, I don't think the Pharisees picked picked up on this one though. Uh, it, it, it reads, "Behold, my servant; I will uphold him. My elect, my soul delighteth in him. I have given my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor have respect to person. Neither shall his voice be heard abroad. The bruised reed he shall not break, and smoking flax he shall not quench." He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not be sad nor troublesome till he set judgment in the earth and the islands shall wait for his law. Thus saith the Lord God that created the heavens and, and stretched them out, that established the earth and the things that spring out of it, that giveth breathe breath to the people upon it and spirit to them that tread thereon. The Lord hath called thee in justice and taken thee by the hand and preserve thee, and I have given thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, that thou mightest open the eyes of the blind, and bring forth the prisoner out of prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison's house. And remember that earlier Matthew, Matthew was referring to the Gentiles, quoting the prophet, said the people that were in darkness have seen a great light. Right. So during, so during this time, Jesus' fame really began to grow. As we have explained earlier, the Jews were in the diaspora and spread throughout the world, but they understood that in, in their books, the prophets, they believed that a Messiah, a new king would come and reestablish the kingdom of David. So this Messiah would be a groom who marries Israel in a new covenant relationship. 
because the Jews knew that they failed in their covenant with God. So, of course, as we discussed, uh, this is the spiritual Israel. We enter through baptism, and the marriage is not an image of celebration, but an image of the groom sacrificing himself for the bride. So John the Baptist, who is the best man or friend of the groom, understood what was happening to a certain extent. Again, as we discussed last week, I, I think God writing through the apostles may have even made them write the deep mysteries in the scripture that they did not fully comprehend, but would be revealed by the church that Paul explained teaches the, the manifold wisdom of God to even the angels. Right. So, and, and I want to interrupt right here because what, what Luke is saying here is very important. This is the mystery of inspiration rather than dictation. We don't believe that the, that the gospels, that the, books of the Bible were dictated to the writers. They were inspired and the writers may have understood what they're writing on one level, but it was true on a deeper level that even the writers themselves did not understand. And this shows God working through them in, in a in a mysterious way. Go ahead, please continue. So John was a voice crying out in the wilderness. For context, let's read Isaiah uh, 43. The voice of one crying in the desert, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight the wilderness, the paths of our God. Isaiah 4 reads, In that day the bud of the Lord shall be in magnificence and glory, and the fruit of the earth shall be high, and a great joy to them that shall have escaped uh, of Israel. And it shall come to the pass that every one that shall be left in Zion and that shall remain in Jerusalem shall be called holy. Everyone that is written in life in Jerusalem. If the Lord shall wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall wash away the blood of Jerusalem out of the midst thereof, by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, and the Lord will create upon every place of Mount Zion, and where he is called upon, a cloud by day and a, and a smoke and brightness of a flaming fire in the night for over all the glory shall be protection and there shall be a tabernacle for a shade in the daytime from the heat and for a security and, and covered from the whirlwind and from the rain. When Isaiah says uh, bud, we can, we can image a netter or the, or the shoot of Jesse from the Davidic line here. And remember what Paul wrote in Hebrews 12 to those who were baptized into the church. Also, when we hear Isaiah writing about the cleansing of Jerusalem and the Shekinah of Zion and how it protects the church. Uh, and, and the Lord will create upon every place of Mount Zion and where he is called upon a cloud by day and a smoke, the brightness of the flaming fire in the night for over all the glory shall be protection. So let's start at Hebrews twelve eighteen, and we see the parallel. For ye are not come to a mountain that might be touched, and a burning fire, and a whirlwind, and darkness, and storm, and the sound of trumpets, and the voice of words, which they, they that had uh, excused themselves, that the word might not be spoken to them. For they did not endure that which was said. And if so much as a beast shall touch the mountain, it shall be stoned. 
And so terrible was that which was seen. Moses said, I am frightened and tremble. But you are come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the company of many thousands of angels, and to the church of the firstborn who are written in the heavens, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the just made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the New Testament, and to the sprinkling of blood which speaketh better than that of Abel. See that you refuse him not that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spoke upon earth, much more shall not we that turn away from him that speaketh to us from heaven. This is the sacramental ecclesia. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom of the reestablished kingdom of David in the sacramental form. Ecclesia, the body of Christ, the Christ is head of the body and mediator to the father of the new covenant as our high priest Melchizedek. This is the Ecclesia protected by the Holy Spirit, as God told us, John 14, 6 through 20. And I will ask the Father, and he shall give you another paraclete, that he may abide with you forever. Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, nor knoweth him. But you shall know him, because he shall abide with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but you see me, because I live, and you shall live. In that day you shall know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. It's it's important to remember that in our last episode, we talked about the disciples of John questioning the practices of Jesus. For, For instance, they said, you know, uh, the disciples of John fast, but your disciples do not fast. I, I believe this provides an important context. The verses uh, that Luke started with here could be understood to show that John was unsure about who Jesus was, but that that's impossible. Okay? They grew up as cousins. There's no uh, – John was the first one to identify Jesus as the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. So there's no way that John did not know who Jesus was. But John's challenge, uh, challenge is not for his own benefit. It's for his disciples' benefit, that they would become convinced who Jesus was. And Jesus fills in the blanks about himself, John, and the Holy Spirit who is to come. It's also important to reflect that Matthew is giving us a theology lesson. As he gives us a history lesson, he is taking great pains to show that the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, is inseparable from the mission of Jesus. The Jesus alone paradigm just doesn't hold up. Everything that Matthew teaches correlates Jesus with the new Jerusalem, with the with the church. And you see You even see the word church over and over and over again. The word church, I think, in the New Testament appears 119 times, right, Luke? Yeah, and and i got to emphasize, unless you believe that the mystical body of Christ is a heavenly reality and not a metaphor, then you're not even going to understand the book of Hebrews. You're not going to understand how God actually takes his body to heaven in the Holy Mass. Yep. 
So we're at Matthew 11, 7 through 19. This is Jesus testifies about John. And when they went their way, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what went you out into the desert to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Behold, they that are clothed in soft garments are in the houses of kings. But what went you went out? What <laughs> do it, Rames? <laughs> but what right. went you out to see? A prophet? Yea, I tell you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my angel before my face, who shall prepare thy way before thee. Amen, I say to you, there hath not risen among them that are born of women a greater than John the Baptist. Yet he that is the, uh, the lesser in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, he is Elias that is come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Whereunto shall I esteem this generation to be like? It is like to the children sitting in the marketplace who cry to their companions, saying, we have piped to you, and you have not danced. We have lamented, and you have not mourned. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man that is a glutton and a wine drinker, a friend of publicans and sinners, and wisdom is justified by her children. Here Jesus confirms the prophecies we just discussed, including how he would be rejected by those in his age of his incarnation and goes on and tells us about the greatness of John. Yet John was still born into original sin. John said, who can make unclean seed clean? Job said, who can make unclean, uh, unclean seed clean? David uh, said, I was born in iniquity in my mother's womb. But as we discussed before, when Jesus said, unless you're born of water and spirit, you should not enter the kingdom of heaven. We understand this kingdom as a sacramental kingdom united to the heaven above. Yet, if Jesus says Satan plants weeds in the kingdom, and there is no influence of Satan in the eternal state of heaven, then the heaven Jesus refers to that we are born again into is his mystical body on earth, the church militant, while the church triumphant is in heaven in the eternal state. And Jesus says, Amen, Amen, I say to you, there hath not risen among them that are born of women a greater than John the Baptist, yet he that is the lesser in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So why would the lesser in the kingdom of heaven be greater than John the Baptist? Because of the grace given freely of redemption from original sin that comes through the true baptism into the, uh, in, in the Trinity. Jesus in the Great Commission said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I would ask uh, my Protestant brothers and sisters, how are disciples made? Is the Holy Spirit present at baptism? If you say no, then, then don't you call God a liar? When you talk about this baptism of the Holy Spirit, right there at a water baptism, we have the triune God which includes the Holy Spirit present.
you know, it's interesting. Um, a couple of things that that you that you pointed out here that I want to found on. First of all, a lot of our Protestant brothers, excuse me, Protestant brothers and sisters like to point to this and say, 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 you Catholics, you you raise Mary up so high, but Jesus says that. John the Baptist was the greatest of all the saints. Well, listen carefully to what he says here. <laughs> exactly. He says, he says, John the Baptist was the greatest born of women, yet he is the least in the kingdom of heaven. And as we talked about earlier, the kingdom of heaven is the church. The kingdom of heaven exists on earth. In fact, Jesus says that there are many who are standing here who will not taste death until the kingdom of heaven comes into fruition. So who is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? Well, you gave the answer and because you said that it is by grace. Well, who is the greatest model of grace? And that is Our Lady. And I just caught something here that Jesus may have just left us a little Easter egg here, and I literally caught this. Anybody that knows an Easter egg is a is a is a term for like a little, you know, little uh, uh, something that's left like in a game or something. It opens up like a like a, a, a special code or or something like that, a cheat code, if you will. Jesus may have left us a little cheat code here because. For years, the church has looked back on the Book of Wisdom, which is a book church in our Bible. It is canonized scripture in the Catholic Church, and the uh, Protestants have taken that out of their Bibles. And it talks about wisdom in depth, and I wish I had time to pull up the verses, but it talks about wisdom in in the reference of a woman. And the church has long, there's been long been a tradition that has held this as a foreshadowing of the Virgin Mother. Wisdom being personified in, in, our, in the Virgin Mother. And I'm just struck by this, this line, and wisdom is justified by her children. And we've talked about look this many times. What's look that? at that Church and Mary. Yeah. So I, I just thought that that's a, just an interesting, interesting thing that wisdom is justified by her children because we have very many times expounded on how the scriptures show that the children of Mary, the rest of the children of Mary, are the true believers in God. So I just... uh like to hear your comments on that on that insight and if you think there's anything to it i I think it's great and uh if if i were to think of something to add you know origin uh when talking about the gospel of john says you cannot understand this gospel You, you see the words but you cannot understand it unless you are like john who was was given mary so that you can uh, uh, be be uh, one as as John was, 
in having this spiritual mother. And you cannot stand the gospel of John unless you take Mary as your own. Right. So, so Wisdom the, is so justified by her children. <laughs> so Matthew eleven twenty through 24. So, so then began he to upbraid the cities wherein were done the most of his miracles, for that they had not done penance. Woe thee, Chorazin, woe to thee, Bethsaida, for if in Tyre and Sidon have been wrought the miracles that have been wrought to y- in you, they had long ago done penance in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And now Capernaum shalt thou be exalted up to heaven. Thou shalt go down even unto hell. For if in Sodom had if in Sodom had been wrought the miracles that have been wrought in thee, perhaps it had remained unto this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. For this, I want to turn toward the Jerome commentary on this. And we read, this is the first of a series of two units that are structured, doom, explanation, comparison. The cities are addressed in apostrophe as if they were persons. The two towns are near the Sea of Galilee and today lie in ruins. The synagogue of Chorazin is visible. Tyre and Sidon Sidon, were Gentile cities in Phoenicia, doomed by the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel. And you, Capernaum, the structure resembles that in in B.C. 21-22, but the emotion is heightened. Capernaum is Jesus' own residence, as we see in 4.13. Addresses it directly, alluding to Isaiah fourteen thirteen through fifteen, and Ezekiel twenty six through twenty. The fate of Sodom is told in Genesis nineteen twenty four and twenty eight. The point in the miracles was to provoke national conversation. So let's read where, where he's going to in Ezekiel twenty seven. We read, and they shall take up a mournful song for thee, and shall lament thee. What city is like Tyre, which is become silent in the midst of the sea, which by thy merchandise that went from thee by sea, this fill many people, which by the multitude of thy riches and of thy people disenrich the kings of the earth. Now thou art destroyed by the sea, thy riches in the bottom of the waters, and all the multitude that was in the midst of thee is fallen. All the inhabitants of the isles are astonished at thee, and all their kings, being struck with the storm, have changed their countenance. The merchants of people have hissed at thee. Thou art brought to nothing, and thou shalt never be any more. And of course, as you mentioned when talking about revelations, Jerusalem was being addressed as Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, we see images of destruction of the temple to come here. Yeah. So Luke is referring to Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, which refers to 
the city of Jerusalem, where our Lord was crucified, as a spiritual Sodom or Egypt. Well, let's re- let's review. Let's, as the old expression goes, Luke, let's look at the videotape. Uh, Sodom, God God rained fire down on Sodom, okay, and He drove His people out of Egypt. So, what is Jesus foretelling here? Jesus is te- foretelling that Jerusalem will have fire rain down on it, and he will drive his people out. And this is what's meant in Revelation 18.4 when he says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. And this is, you know, used as an attack on Catholicism, which is just nonsense. It's talking about the city of Jerusalem. In, In Luke chapter 21, Jesus says, When you see Jerusalem encompassed by armies, Flee to the mountains. Do not look back. Do not go back for your cloak. Okay? Um, it, it's that kind of urgent language. So, and I can see how this is impossible for a first century Jew to apprehend. Literally everything they perceived about God's plan was wrong. They had so much difficulty overcoming their image of what God's plan was and what the Messiah would be from the actual fulfillment. They were so caught up in the shadows that they couldn't comprehend the realization. And in fact, today, few today really have an accurate understanding of Jesus and his mission. And that's why he had to shock them into understanding his mission. And we see this in in Jerusalem 24. I mean, I'm sorry, in Matthew 24, which we'll get to later, where they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem marveling at the buildings and jesus says to them oh you see these buildings do you i tell you not one stone will be left upon another when when you talk about the temple in jerusalem what jesus was was referring to there was do you know the heaviest foundation stone at the temple in jerusalem luke is estimated to weigh one million pounds do you know there were stones that weigh 160,000 to 200,000 pounds that are elevated to a height of 100 feet. Do you know this took uh, six people? It's just uh, fascinating. Right. It took six people to open or close the doors of the temple in Jerusalem. So, I mean, what Jesus was saying, I mean, we, we have modern examples to, 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 to kind of use as correlation the sinking of the Titanic, okay, the the collapse of the World Trade Center. These were were events that shocked us and horrified us. But those events to us are nothing, nothing compared to the shock of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem to these first century Jewish people. It's unthinkable. It was absolutely unthinkable that the temple in Jerusalem could be destroyed. And and yet it was, and here Jesus is foretelling it. And it's part of his mission of shocking them into abandoning all the pretenses they had of what his mission was. His mission was to conquer the Romans. His mission was to conquer sin. To add a little more context, uh, that brings to mind uh, what Scott Hahn said, Dr. Scott Hahn, when he's talking about the 144,000 and the words get out of her. 
uh, Scott Hahn saw that as the 144,000 being dressed in their white robes, which is those who are baptized, the Christians, being told to get out of her, which was uh, leave Jerusalem. And uh, he said at that time, uh, uh, there's all Christians left uh, Jerusalem before the blockade, and uh, most went to a place called Pella. So just add a little more context to it. So we're on Matthew 11:25 through 30. So at that time, Jesus answered and said, I confess to thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them to the little ones. Yea, Father, for so hath it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me by my Father, and no one knoweth the Son but the Father, neither doth anyone know the Father but the Son, and he to whom it shall please the Son to reveal him. Come to me, all you that labor and are burdened, and I will refresh you. Take up my yoke upon you and learn me, because I am meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest to your souls, for my yoke is sweet and my burden light. Jesus now in addressing himself not only as the son of man, but the son of God. When the Jewish Shemnah says, Hear, O Israel, our God is one, is showing that he is God. He is showing that it is his wrath that comes upon those who reject him. Then to those of humble heart, he does not express wrath, but love. So Jesus says, and no one knoweth the Son but the Father, neither doth anyone know the Father but the Son, and he to whom it shall please the Son to reveal him. When we hear this, we, sh- we should think about Paul's words in-, in Romans 9. And I want to read this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? God forbid that he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but God that showeth mercy. And right before this, Paul showed us this family of God that we addressed last week. uh, Through Isaac do we become the family of God. That is through the miraculous birth of baptism into Christ Jesus. So when Jesus says that, his yoke is light. We should see a contrast between the yoke of the Torah of rule, fear, and temporal punishment, as uh, yeah, as I discussed, and the law written on our hearts that Christians raised to the Beatitudes, contemplating the love of the cross, along with the law of faith in the religion and ritual of the new covenant here. Yeah, and and we have to continually fight the urge to look at first century teaching through 21st century glasses. Only then could we understand the shock and horror of hearing that we must take up our cross and the difficulty of reconciling this with my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I, I can really understand and 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 appreciate the difficulty Matthew had in conveying this. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So we're at Matthew 12, 1 through 8. Uh, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. At that time, Jesus went through the corn on the Sabbath, and his disciples, being hungry, began to pluck the ears and to eat. And the Pharisees, seeing them, said to him, 
Behold, thy disciples do it which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the loaves of proposition, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for them that were with him, but for the priest only? Or have ye not read in the law that on the Sabbath days the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are without blame? But I tell you that there is here a greater than the temple. And if you knew what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You would never have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, Sabbath means rest, and our rest is in Christ. But to go deeper, our rest is in the Eucharistic heart of Christ. And the true rest from the Mosaic law is in its fulfillment in the true Passover for the general redemption of the world, the Holy Mass. Every high holy day, the priest would remove the table of the presence, including the libation offering uh, that's, that's on the table, and uh, remove it from the holies and bring it out to the people and in front of the gate. And they would raise the table up and say, Behold God blo- God's love for you. So we see this at every holy mass when the priest raises the, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist before the, uh, before the Father, the royal priesthood, all of us together. And we hear the words, this is the Lamb of God. It takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are called the Supper of the Lamb. So this is the true bread of the presence. Behold God's love for you. So we should note that Jesus is not anti-Torah here or anti-Sabbath, but he is giving a lesson of, uh, uh, of the Pharisaic uh, overdevelopment of the laws about Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So these became part of a man-made tradition beyond the Torah. So the rabbis in their, in their man-made traditions classified 39 different types of work to be forbidden on the Sabbath. Matthew in writing that there is something greater than the Sabbath here is again directing us to Jesus as the Son of God, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, the same God who said, I have not to come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, or to make all of the types into their heavenly and sacramental realities. So we also see a precursor to the new covenant priesthood here, in that it was the Levitical priest who went into the holies and ate of the bread of the presence every Sabbath as they were replacing the old bread from the new. And it was Jesus as high priest who allowed the apostles to eat because they were hungry on on the Sabbath. And again, we see Jesus uh, said, I will have mercy, not sacrifice. He's referring to the Jewish sacrificial system, not offering himself to the fathers of the Holy Mass. So in in seeing his sacrifice for others, we we should all have, have mercy on others. Is, uh, right. is this also context? Right, and and I I'm reminded of Romans chapter two here. Uh, this is uh, let me read from there. Wherefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judges, for when in for when there judges another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou dost the same things without judges, for we know that the judgment of God is according to truth, according to them that do such things. And thinking thou this, O man, that judges, that judges them who do such things and does the same, 
that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and patience and long suffering, knowing thou not that the benignity of God leadeth thee to penance, but according to the hardness according to thy hardness and impenitent heart, thou treasure, treasurest up to thyself wrath against the day of wrath and judgment of the just judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his work. To them indeed, who according to patience and good works, seek glory and honor and incorruption and eternal life, but to them that are contentious and obey not the truth, equity, wrath, and indignation, this seems to mesh with the message, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. They were doing the external things, but they were still filled with judgment and envy and hate. Their hearts were not changing. This is what Paul is saying in Romans. The purpose of God's mercy is to lead you to repentance. They were not being led to repentance, which was the whole point of God's mercy. And this is the whole idea of the, uh, of the, of the Sabbath, which we're going to get into uh, later, is where Luke was, was talking about their fanatical interpretation of the Sabbath. But I'm going to let Luke continue here. We'll address that in a minute. Uh, just to add something to uh, uh, where you read in Romans right there is the suffering servant. I mean, he is God who who uh, who, who suffers. Yeah, and uh, some people don't pick up on that one right there. Uh-huh. Right. But we'll go to Matthew twelve nine through fourteen. And when he had passed from thence, from thence, he came into their synagogues, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? But he said to them, What man shall there be among you that hath one sheep? And if the same fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not take hold of it and lift it up? How much better is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do a good deed on the Sabbath day. Then he saith to the man, Stretch forth thy hand, and he stretched it forth, and it was restored to health, even as the other. And the Pharisees going out made a consultation against him, how they might destroy him. Here Jesus goes on to deepen people's understanding of of the new law, that would be through grace given freely, written on our hearts, further showing us the spiritual nature of our rest in Christ and in his love and charity. So in, in healing the man with the withered hand combined with a Sabbath dispute, we see Matthew showing divine approval of a humanitarian interpretation of Sabbath. So Jesus is also showing that it is legal to do what is good on the Sabbath. Therefore, the, the Pharisees developed a false understanding of why Jesus gave the Jews the Sabbath in the first place. So it, uh, it's typology. The Sabbath was a rest from the pedagogy, the schoolmaster, the law given for worshiping the golden calf as the curse of the law. So Paul said that uh, that law has been nailed to the cross. So the physical Sabbath uh, against shows us how the Jews could separate from the curse and rest in Christ through entrance into the body of Christ and the promise of Abraham fulfilled through baptism. Right. 
And, and to those of you who are listening in your 21st century homes, Jesus' words sound reasonable. But they didn't sound reasonable to a first century Jew who believed the Sabbath was the end all and be all. And their perception was understandable. Consider this passage from the book of Numbers. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, this man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. So Jesus and his disciples' conduct seems almost flippant to this backdrop that the Sabbath was just, you know, that was it. It was there was no flexibility in it whatsoever, um, and and that was the the interpretation of the Pharisees that the Sabbath was was Lord of of and this is what Jesus corrected when he says, you know, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and it's hard to understand that given this backdrop and the context with when this backdrop was viewed. Okay, so we'll go to Matthew twelve, fifteen through twenty one. But Jesus knowing it retired from thence, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And he charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul hath been well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He shall show the judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not contend nor cry out. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. The bruised reed he shall not break, and smoking flax he shall not extinguish. Till he send forth judgment unto victory, and the name of the Gentiles shall hope. And in his name, the Gentiles shall hope. We've already brought up this prophecy fulfilled earlier. So it's natural that things are, are going to overlap a little bit here. So this is from Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. And Isaiah 21, uh, 17, where we see a suffering servant who has a deep love for his people. But again, we also see this theme of the Gentiles coming to know God. And in his name, the Gentiles shall hope. So we'll move on to Matthew twelve twenty-two through 30. Then was offered to him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him so that he spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But the Pharisees, hearing it, said, This man casteth out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself shall, shall be made desolate, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I be Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? 
Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out devils, then is the kingdom of God come upon you? Or how can anyone enter into the house of the strong and rifle his goods, unless he first bind the strong, and then he will rifle his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scatters. So it looks like the Pharisees are building up their rage here against someone who is doing things they cannot explain and someone who they believe blasphemies blasphemies by calling themselves the son of man who even goes against their Sabbath traditions. So they're, they're freaking out here. <laughs> yeah. Someone who the multitudes is seeing uh, as the son of David even, or in other words, king of the Davidic line, which is the beginning of the fulfilling of the prophecies of reestablishing the kingdom of David on earth. Uh, for those who didn't uh, did not have the opportunity to listen to earlier shows, at the Council of Jerusalem, James explained that the kingdom of David has been reestablished in the church for both Jews and Gentiles. He was quoting the prophet Amos on this, this prophecy fulfilled in the church in the, in this council event. So Jesus actually confirms this to the Pharisees when he says, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself shall be made desolate, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he divided against himself. How then shall this kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out devils, then is the kingdom of God come upon you. So the Jerome commentary reads on this, every kingdom divided against itself. The saying about the kingdom divided teaches a basic lesson of political science. In the unity, there is strength. Satan's realm is described as a kingdom, which is at war with, with God's kingdom. So Life is a struggle in which God wins only at a, at a terrible price, since Jesus' specific form of miracle working is expulsion of demons, and this would be counterproductive if he were himself demonic. The argument is valid, but only for that kind of miracle. Uh, but what the Jerome commentary leaves out is a specific situation where demons can willfully leave a body in order to promote a heretical belief system, of course. And this is why God raises obedience to faith above all these things. Obedience to the faith is the narrow road transforming grace while living the sacramental life. So Jesus says, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father. So, And he goes on like we were talking about before, uh, about uh, casting out demons and things like that. So Satan can mention all three miracles, prophecy, casting out demons. So obedience is the key to overcoming the deception. The living obedience to faith, there's no living the new covenant. It's just not there. You can't do it. You, you just can't ignore all the religion and ritual across the new covenant. You can't ignore Paul saying, obey your prelates who have the rule over you for the watch of your souls. And you end up in a patchwork of a construct of anti-Catholicism created by man. Not to be cruel, but to be truthful here, uh, there is no unity outside of truth. Outside of obedience to faith is is hard to reconcile this, this image 
with what was defined as Christianity by the early church. Even the so-called first reformers would not even recognize modern Protestantism as Christianity. Right. And the house divided against itself is a perfect image of Protestantism. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to see it any other way, Luke. The two images of the church are one that is a unified house and two that it is opposed by the whole world. Now, what Protestant denomination could ever claim to fulfill this, to be totally unified in its belief system and to be in opposition to the entire world? I challenge any Protestant to tell me their denomination fits those two criteria. And Jesus says, he that's not with me scatters. Well, think of the words, this is my body. That is a unifying factor of apostolic churches all celebrating you know, the true Passover uh, for the general redemption of the world with the hosts of heaven. Right. And you know, the, the, the most ironic thing about that is one of the verses that they point to that, that says, you know, that we're, we're supposed to only believe that it's belief. They, they point to John chapter 6, verse 14 where Jesus says, the work you must do is to believe uh, believe in me who the Father sent. And, and they say, that's it. That's the only work that you have to do is believe. Well, they leave out a lot of context there, because what follows is the Pharisees ask him, well, what work do you perform that we may believe in you? What is the work that we must believe in you our fathers gave us bread from heaven. And Jesus responds and says, I am the true bread from heaven. And this is when he goes into the entire bread of life. So Jesus is saying, yes, you must believe in me. And the very thing that Jesus puts out there as the defining catalyst of what true belief is, is belief in the true presence. It's right there. It is the core the foundation of belief. And, I, you know, I hear a lot of Protestants that will make this argument, well, you know, we disagree on this, we disagree on that, but we all believe in the foundational. Well, what Jesus right here is saying, this is about as foundational as it gets. So what, what, what work have you performed that we must believe in? And Jesus lays it out here. This is the core of what it means to be a Christian to believe what he says about his own body and blood. Exactly, exactly. So we'll move on to Matthew twelve thirty-one and 32. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but the blasphemy of the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But he that shall speak against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come. Sin is separation from God, yet there are sins that, if not corrected, if not repented from before death, then they keep the soul from, from saving grace, because it separated the soul from saving grace. First right. uh, John five sixteen says there's, there is sin, and there is sin unto death. So this sin has been understood in church as uh, the catechism defines sin as uh, sin is an offense against reason, truth, and right, consciousness. 
It is a failure in genuine love for God and neighbor caused by a perverse attachment to certain goods. It wounds the nature of man and injures human solidarity. It has been defined as an utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law. Sin is an offense against God. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. Sin sets itself against God's love for us and turns our hearts away from it. Like the first sin, it is disobedience, a revolt against God through the will to become like God's, knowing the determining good and evil. Sin is is the love of oneself, even to contempt of God. In this proud self-exaltation, sin is diametrically opposed to the obedience of Jesus, which achieves our salvation. It is precisely in the passion, the mercy of Christ is about to vanquish it, that sin most clearly manifests its violence and its many forms, unbelief, murderous hatred shunning and mockery by the leaders and the people, Pilate's cowardice and the cruelty of the soldiers, Judas's betrayal, so bitter to Jesus, Peter's denial and the disciples' fight. However, at the very hour of darkness, the hour of the prince of this world, the sacrifice of Christ is secretly becomes the source from which the forgiveness of our sins will pour forth inexhaustibly the catechism goes on sin creates a proclivity to sin it engenders vice by this results in perverse inclinations which cloud conscience and corrupt the concrete judgment of the good and evil thus sin tends to reproduce itself and reinforce itself but it cannot destroy the moral sense at its root Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. There is no limits to the mercy of God, but everyone who deliberately refuses to accept his mercy by repenting rejects the forgiveness of his sins and the salvation offered by the Holy Spirit. Such hardness of heart can lead to final impenitence and eternal loss. Yet And yet blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is going against the conscience to the point where you say, I know what is better for me than God does. So this is manifested as despair concerning the possibility of salvation, presumption of God's mercy and forgiveness, denial of the truths of faith, and final impenitence and refusal to turn to God. But uh, notice in the catechism, it it refers back to that quote from Satan, you will not die, you will be as gods. If we look at the concept of Sola Scriptura, you're creating your own image of God through an interpretation you choose instead of living in obedience to the faith. So that in itself is, is sinful if this, you know, is, is comes to your conscience, that this is what is happening. Right. I mean, Adam and Eve believed in God. <laughs> you you can't say they didn't believe believe in God. They walked with Him, <laughs> and and yet 
Why were they punished? Why were they banished from the Garden of Eden? Because they did what God told them not to do. So this this image of an unforgivable sin resulting from speaking out against the Holy Spirit, again, as Luke says, has to be understood as final impenitence. A, a person who feels genuine sorrow for his sins, not merely for their consequences, that person is still connected to God, and it's difficult for us to grasp how those who refuse to repent now will later be unable to repent. It, it's difficult to, we, we, you know, we believe that repentance is something that we do, but it's really cooperating with the contrition that God is putting in us. And um, Bishop Sheen once observed that to sin is human, but to persist in sin is diabolical. And it, and it really is. It's, it's a choice. It's a choice between cooperating with God's will and cooperating with the devil's will. That's really the choice that's made. And it's difficult to comprehend is that at the end of your life, the book of mercy closes and the book of judgment opens. And you will no longer be able to repent. You'll no longer have the ability. I, I, I don't know how many times I've heard Luke say that. That I've, I mean, I've heard people say that. Well, how can God not forgive these people who, you know, forever and ever and ever repent of their sins, and God can never forgive them? The souls in hell do not repent. They're not capable of it. Now. They repent of their punishment. <laughs> um, that's for sure. They repent of their punishment. But it, as hard as this is for us to grasp and comprehend, a soul in hell, if given the choice to leave hell by falling down at the feet of Jesus willingly and worshiping him and following his will, they would refuse to do so. They would stubbornly refuse to do so. So fixed is their will in the hatred of God and the rejection of God. It's it's something we can't we just can't get our minds around. It's not something a human mind can comprehend, Luke. No, not at all. Not at all. And uh yeah, it's just like uh it kinda of makes me think about purgatory, you know. Purgatory is a mercy of God. So at that moment of death, you're either in a state of grace or you're not. You're either under those sinning against the Holy Spirit or you're not. And everybody goes to purgatory and ends up in heaven because they die in a state of grace. But the the soul that's you know still needs to be you know uh, uh, in purgatory is being cleansed of ego is being cleansed of self-will. And it takes us right back to the Garden of Eden. You will not die, you will be as gods. You will have value separate from God. Well, this this is impossible in a state of eternal joy with God, to have value separate from God or, or to have... So uh, purgatory is there for so that we could have perfect union and perfect joy and perfect love without guilt. Right. And, you know, some of the writings of the great saints illustrate this, this, again, this mystery that those souls in purgatory suffer, and some of them suffer greatly. 
And for long periods of time, in the midst of that horrible suffering, they also feel the greatest joy that they've ever experienced. That's hard for us to fathom how they can experience that agony and that joy at the same time uh, because they realize they're safe and, and they realize and they understand. And here's something else. This is from the dialogues uh, with St. Catherine uh, of Siena and her, uh, and her conversation with God the Father. You want to talk about something that's hard to grasp. She said that if a soul in hell had the choice to remain in the flames and yet be in the presence of God or to be denied the presence of God but then be released from the flames, the soul would choose to remain in the flames because the the separation, the eternal separation from God is a worse suffering for them being in the flames. Wow. <laughs> That's, it, I, I mean, I can't even comprehend or imagine anything worse than being in fire. And if there's something worse than that, that's something I don't ever want to experience or even come close to experiencing. I think you would agree with me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of reminds me of something that Charles Keating, uh, the one, uh, the great uh, apologist you had in the, on the show a little while back that uh, I had Carl the opportunity to, 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 to talk to on that show. Yeah. And I, I, I'm going to paraphrase him here because uh, – you know, I, I, I don't remember the exact words, but he is talking about uh, uh, purgatory, and he is saying that uh, when it comes to if it's needed or not, he was saying that if you don't think it's needed, then you think that your uh, your soul is in such a perfect state that you could transform from this life to the next in, in perfect union with God. So... You're either over, you know, you know, overthinking on your perfection, or you're thinking that God is 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 far from perfect. One of the two, because right. in order to have union with perfection, there's there's no way around it, except for to be perfected. Yep, exactly. So we'll move on to Matthew twelve thirty three through thirty seven. Tree recognized by its fruit. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree evil and its fruit evil. For by the fruit the tree is known. Generation of vipers, how can you speak good things, whereas you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Good man out of a good treasure bringeth forth good deed things. And an evil man out of evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall render an account for. It is it in the day of judgment. For by your words thou shalt be justified, and by your words thou shalt be condemned. That kind of blows away that uh, once save, always save thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, 
<laughs> and faith alone. So right. first, Jesus, first Jesus addressed disobedience to God, and now not having faith in his mercy, now he amplifies this to a life that needs to bring forth good fruit. So this is one among hundreds of texts that contradicts the Protestant faith alone doctrine, obviously. And if you place it in context with the few verses we already discussed, uh, it's it's just it just blows the whole you know thing out of the water. So Protestants will try and say that works of charity are simply a product, uh, kind of an afterthought of faith, and those works have no bearing on salvation. And yet God addressed this good tree in the context of proving it's a good tree by its fruit. So you cannot separate the grace of being able to fight concupiscence from the living in holiness and charity, which is being Christ a man. Therefore, Jesus even says that by our words, we can be condemned because a lot of times, even by our words, we are choosing ego and going against conscience. So... Gregory of uh, Nisan writes uh, in the, in the uh, early 4th century, Paul joining righteousness to faith and weaving them together constructs of them the breastplates for the infantrymen and armoring the soldier properly and safely on both sides. A soldier cannot be considered safely armored when either shield is disjoined from the other. Faith without works of justice is not sufficient for salvation Neither is righteous living secure in itself of salvation if it is disjointed from faith. Right, and I'm just amazed at the idea that people can read this and still come away with this Jesus did it all nonsense. I mean, the the sense of a tree being cut down and thrown into the fire because it didn't bear good fruit, just who do these people presume the tree is? In this in this analogy, who is the tree that does not bear good fruit and is cut down and thrown into the fire? I, I don't know, I don't know how you write, uh, reconcile this with what Jesus did at all, and I don't have to do anything. I, it, it's almost like this is the reason why I wanted to explore this full of Matthew because to me. I remember when I was a young man, Luke, and Protestants would try to convert me and, you know, handed me their New Testament and everything like that. And, oh, the New Testament. Well, okay. Well, let me read it. <laughs> okay, well, the New Testament starts with what book? Matthew. <laughs> okay. So I would open it up and read it, and I was like, okay. Uh, this This doesn't jibe with the theology that you're trying to teach me. So it was it was the Bible alone that convinced me that the Bible alone was false. It's kind of you know. Then you got that, this group now. Uh, they take uh, the verse from Timothy, and it talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. And this is only in the King James version or the Webster's version, which is. Another translation from the early King James Version. So then they separate Paul from all the Gospels and say he's teaching a different doctrine to, to, to different people. And it just gets it gets so convoluted with this scripture alone and, and ego attached to it. 
It's really ridiculous. But everything that Paul was saying is is perfectly aligned with you know everything Christ was saying, everything all the apostles were saying. But people just can't catch on to it because they have a modern understanding of faith, grace, and works. And uh, yeah, we've discussed this in the past, but uh, just this is just something I want to add to it. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're at uh, the sign of Jonah. So then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee, who answering said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh sign, and a sign shall not be given it, but the sign of, the, of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was in the whale's belly three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they didn't did uh, penance at the preaching of Jonas and hold a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, greater than Solomon is here. It's interesting how the Pharisees were hearing about uh, constant miracles and appears to have witnessed them would again ask Jesus for a sign. Uh, this is not a desire to know the truth, but more sophistry. And sophistry is simply lying to yourself, and that's, that's what they're doing here. So let your eyes be uh, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus understood what was in their minds, and in re- response used as a lesson of preaching and repentance. So the bringing up Jonah refers to Jesus' coming resurrection and the ultimate sign for all believers. He is showing the Pharisees as being a type for Nineveh who did not listen to Jonas, but laughed at him in, in scorn at first, then turned to penance. So the remnant of the Jews will, will turn to penance and enter the body of Christ along with the 12 apostles, but most would not therefore uh, the church would turn to, to the Gentiles, fulfilling the prophecy. So the Queen of Sheba appears in uh, 1 Kings 10, 1 through 13. Uh, in this context, uh, Jesus is a type of Solomon. So let's read a little of, of this discourse here. So, And the Queen of, of Sheba, having heard of the fame of Solomon in the name of the Lord, came to try him with hard questions. And entering into Jerusalem with a great train and riches and camels that carried spices and an immense quantity of gold and precious stones, she came to King Solomon and spoke to him all that she had in her heart. And Solomon informed her of the things she proposed to him. There was not any word the king was ignorant of and which he could not answer her. And when the queen of, of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon... And the house which he had built, and the meat of his table, and the apartments of his servants, and the order of his ministers, and their apparel, and the cupbearers, and the holocaust which he had offered in the house of the Lord, she had no longer any spirit in her. And she said to the king, The report is true, which I heard in my own country, concerning thy words, and concerning thy wisdom. So, in the Old Testament, this queen is seen as a foil to Solomon. In the New Testament, she's appearing as a foil to Jesus himself, who is God. 
uh, a foil character is someone who contrasts the traits and actions of another character, often as a uh, first a protagonist. So if we see the world of the Gentile nations coming into the knowledge of Christ, then they would be repeating the words of the Queen of South. The report is true, which I heard in my own country, concerning thy words and concerning thy wisdom. And many people have used this saying of Jesus, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign to impugn the validity of miracles in the Catholic Church, which are many. And we do know that Jesus did, in fact, perform many signs and predicted many would come in the future on both the sides of good and evil. But what must be understood in proper context here is the disposition of the heart that either sees a sign merely to be entertained or one that could ap- actually uh, profit from it by a changed life. So even the signs are the signs are designed to reveal God's truth to change the heart to change the life of the person, not merely to entertain them. And uh, we, we pretty much got to stop it right there. In fact, we've, we've actually gone a little bit into the archives, so we're going to have to pick up, we'll pick up next week from Matthew 12, 43 to 45. We'll continue next week. And um, Luke, if you would uh, end us in a closing prayer. Well, again, let's... Uh... Let's pray with our Protestant brothers and sisters in the Our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. God bless you, brother. I'll see you next Monday. Okay. Good night.